Good morning once again. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We are going to begin dissecting the plagues. As I uh, thought about what's going on here, I was reminded of a story that happened uh, in my early childhood. Uh, when I was maybe five or six years old, um, I remember my dad just came home one day with a motorcycle. If you know anything about me, that was a glorious day. But there was a small problem with that. Uh, my mom and him had an agreement that he would not get a motorcycle until uh, me and my brothers were older. And so, uh, yeah, he came home, and I think his idea was it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. So he bought a motorcycle and brought it home. What he should have asked for is a receipt, because my mom was not going to have this motorcycle uh, at our house. And uh, I'll tell you partly why that happened. I don't take the full blame for my dad having to, to get rid of the motorcycle, but I may, I may have had something to do with it. I remember my dad uh, parks the motorcycle on this kind of concrete uh, patio area we had. And, uh, you know, he's just come home with it, uh, been, been, been riding home. And, um, you know, I, I'm just enthralled with the thing. So I'm sitting there staring at it. My mom's not happy. So they go inside. <laughs> and my dad says this, though, before he leaves. He says it to, to me and my brothers, do not touch the motorcycle. It will burn you. Okay, I got it. That's no big deal. So they, they go inside. I'm sitting there looking at it, and I'm looking at it, and then kind of I'm like, will it really burn me? I mean, I don't know. So I remember, I, I don't remember the exact order of what I did these things, but I, I think I touched like the, the grip, you know, the handlebar grip. And I'm like, well, that wasn't so bad. And then I uh, touched the, the gas tank, right? You got this shiny painted gas tank. I touch it. Well, that's a little warm, like the, this, like the sun's been warming it, but that's no big deal. My dad must really think I can't handle heat because that was no big deal at all. And so I remember I'm staring at it again. I had no idea any parts of a motorcycle at this age. And I noticed these beautiful pipes coming out of the engine. And there, these pipes really close to the engine, they were kind of blue and purple and gold. They kind of changed color. You know anything about motorcycles, that's called an exhaust pipe. And the reason they have changed colors is extreme heat. Well, I touched the grip, that went okay. I touched the gas tank, it was a little warm, but <laughs> no big deal, I can handle this. So I reach out and I touch the blue and purple and gold metal coming out of the engine. As you can imagine, that day did not go well for me. The day actually didn't go well for anyone. You know, my finger felt like it was on fire and throbbing. I was in huge trouble with my parents because I disobeyed and my dad had to sell the motorcycle. So again, I don't take full responsibility for him not having a motorcycle for many, many more years. He did get one again later and I did not touch his exhaust again. But the moral of the story is this. This is why I was so reminded you can only play with fire or anything extremely hot for so long before you get burnt. You absolutely will get burnt. And as we've seen so far in Exodus, God is a holy fire. 
And God has already shown himself as a holy fire right when he appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush. But now God is not just going to have the appearance of a flame. He's going to do the activity of a flame. He is about to let his holy justice loose on a man, on a nation who has been playing with fire for far too long. Up to this point, Pharaoh has been playing with fire for a long time. He has been a wicked man. He has been an oppressive man. He has been a disobedient man to God. God has sent Moses to tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go that we may worship him in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, no. At this point, God has even had Aaron's you know, rod turn into a serpent and swallow up the serpents of the magicians, of Pharaoh's magicians. And yet still, Pharaoh says, no. He's touched the grip. He's touched the gas tank. Hadn't got burned yet. Let's see how it continues to go for him there. Beginning in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. You can follow along. Hopefully I'll remember to do the slides. This is what it says. This is after the serpent thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the, oh, next slide. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the, all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, even as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile seven full days after the Lord had struck the Nile. Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. 
the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. I want to point out something real quick. Notice the magicians are only making things worse. They're not reversing anything. They're adding to the blood. They're adding to the frogs. Anyway, I just want to keep going. Verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he, Pharaoh, said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and, from, and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your, your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That is God's word. That's where we will pause today. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I, I do believe there are many lessons that we can learn from these plagues. I know we will dig in again next week. But God, my, my specific request for us today is that we would not be satisfied with only knowing you for your mercy and your compassion and your grace. These are indeed glorious attributes of yours, Lord God, but they do not stand alone. In these pages, in these verses, your holiness is put on display what you think about sin is put on display. How you respond to the sinful disobedience of mankind is put on display. And Lord, while we want to love you, we know we also need to fear you. 
to have a holy fear that we do not toy with you, that we do not mock you, that we do not play with you or test you, God. Lord, do this through your word, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we've seen, you do not play with fire and come out unscathed. I learned that lesson as a kid. Pharaoh is learning that lesson now. And the way that I have termed that in this sermon, you can see at the top of your notes, is disobedience brings disaster. This, by the way, is a pervasive theme throughout the Bible. You, you look at chapter 2. <laughs> Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God promised that if they disobeyed, if Adam and Eve disobeyed, then disaster would follow. And of course it did. You can think about how mankind was getting more and more evil and the thoughts and intentions of their heart were evil continually. And what does God do? Does God say, oh, people are just no one's perfect. He floods the world. He literally only saves the life of eight people in an ark. And you, you can keep on going, the Tower of Babel. You, you can just keep on going with the way God handles Babylon, with the way God handles Israel, right? He's going to give them shortly after these plagues and after they're delivered, he's going to give them the law. And the law will be filled with commands and the law will be filled with promises of great blessing, but also promises of curses. If you do not obey, disaster will follow. Pervasive theme within the Bible. You say, oh, you've only quoted Old Testament. That's the God of the Old Testament. He was angry. Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8. This is New Testament. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, his own sinful flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Again, just all through the Bible. Proverbs talks about the foolish and what will happen to them because of their disobedience. I mean, just all through the Bible. Disobedience brings disaster. And let me tell you something, I love the grace and mercy, mercy and patience of God. I really do. I mean, there, there are few things that get me more fired up than knowing that I deserve God's punishment. I deserve God's wrath, yet he gives me blessing, yet he gives me grace. And that is true, that is biblical, but it does not take away from the holiness of God, that disobedience. Continued disobedience, unrepentant disobedience will lead to disaster in your life. And what I want to show you from the plagues is just practically what this looks like. I, I believe that, that the plagues, again, one of the things they teach us is they're a paradigm for how God treats people who continue in disobedience. This escalating disaster in their lives. And so the first thing I want to show you, I didn't get the slides right. The first thing I want to show you is this. Sin brings further removal from paradise. Sin brings further removal from paradise. It's an interesting thing 
that, that in the, the book of Genesis, the book just before Exodus, the land of Egypt is compared to the Garden of Eden. Eden, by the way, uh, it, it, the, the literal meaning of it in Hebrew is paradise, the Garden of Paradise. And in the book of Genesis, uh, Egypt is compared to the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden. Um, look at it there on the screen. Genesis 13, 10 and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That's the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So the, the Egypt, this empire, this nation that where they lived was a little bit like paradise. And what was it that made it so much like paradise? You see, it was a well, it was a well watered. Well, what, what watered Egypt? The Nile. It is the Nile River that made Egypt such a great place to be. It was the Nile River that made Egypt a relatively comfortable, easy place to live. It was a place of abundance and pleasure. Now, think back with me in Genesis. You have the Garden of Eden. God creates paradise and he places humans in it to enjoy paradise. But they sin against him. They walk in disobedience. And what is God's response? Well, first and most importantly, they are removed from the blessed presence of God. They're removed from fellowship and communion with the God who created them. That is most important. But Egypt is far from that <laughs> uh, in our comparison here. What God does is he removes them from paradise. He physically has them pushed out of paradise and he guards the, the entrance with, with flaming swords and cherubim. In addition, God puts a curse on creation. You can read about it again in Genesis 3. God puts a curse on creation. Childbirth and child raising will now be filled with pain. There will now be tension in relationships, especially the marital relationship, the marital union. And God even says, cursed will be the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall produce. What was the garden producing? I mean, it says there was every kind of fruit to eat. These trees that you could just reach out and grab and the most delicious thing you could, you could eat it. And, and Adam and Eve were to work the garden and it was to be this joyful work. And now thorns and thistles the ground will produce. By the sweat of your face, you will make bread, God says to Adam. And then finally he says, from the dust you came into the dust you will return. There is a curse put on creation. They are physically moved from paradise. And then even the, the idea of paradise is removed from the world around them and in their experiences. But now we look at Exodus in the land of Egypt as a sort of paradise. The people are once again disobeying God. And so how is God going to respond this time? I would say in, in exactly the same way. Again, it's a paradigm. God, God did it in Genesis 3, and now he's going to do it again in Exodus 7 and following. God is going to take away paradise. And so we see in Exodus chapter 7, verses 20 to 21, 
and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. I would like to mention here, some people would say, oh, it was just a red algae. It doesn't say it looked like blood. It says it turned into blood. The Bible is very clear in what it says here. The water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. So, so you have the Nile that's flowing through Egypt. By the way, there was a river flowing through the Garden of Eden. Anyway, there's this river that's, that's providing life and abundance and comfort and ease. It's providing a sort of paradise for them. And because of Pharaoh's sin, because of their sin, God takes it away. No more fish. I mean, the, the Nile flowed northward, so it's pushing all the fish right to Egypt. Fish in a barrel. I mean, that's, that's what it would have been like for them to fish out of the Nile. And it says, and the fish in the Nile died. And then it says there, that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. I mean, this was their source of water. The, the, the Nile brought them fresh water. Then they would take that and they would fill their canals and their ponds and they would use it to irrigate the land. They would use it to drink water. And it says they could not drink the water from the Nile. And you kind of see the futility of it in, in uh, verse uh, 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. <laughs> They're in paradise at one moment, walking in disobedience, playing with fire. And the next thing you know, they don't have fish, they don't have water, they don't have the water to farm or to drink, and they're out there digging along the Nile, trying to find water. By the way, the text does not say whether or not they got fresh water, whether or not it worked to dig along the edges of the Nile. It's a picture of futility. It's a picture of this removal of paradise. Friends, God has created this world good. I mean, in Genesis 1, it was very good. Sin has brought a curse on this world because of our sin, but the world is still infused. It is still furnished with many, many good things, many pleasures, many comforts. God has made a good world to be enjoyed but the fact is, when we dishonor the God who makes the world the way that it is, who makes the world to be enjoyed, when we dishonor him by continued disobedience, he begins to remove that paradise from us. And we see it over and over. Again, you think about with the Israelites, they, they get into the promised land, a land filled with milk and honey, and then they walk in years and years of rebellion. And what does God do? invaders come in, they beat down their fields, they beat down their cities, and they take them away as captives. They're removed from paradise. This is what God does. This is how he responds to continued disobedience. Now, if that weren't bad enough, these consequences for sin are just going to continue getting worse. So far, we've seen the physical disaster, the physical calamity that's come upon them. Lack of water, lack of food. And, and a lot of us can handle physical troubles, bad circumstances. 
But when things really start to get sideways is when our mental and emotional state gets messed up. That's how it is for me. I, I can make it through some really bad circumstances as long as I've got peace, as long as I've got hope, as long as I've got joy, I can make it through those circumstances pretty okay. But the real problem comes when my, my brain and my heart and my emotions start to turn sideways. And that, that's exactly what I, I believe we see here in Exodus. This is number two. Sin brings a life that stinks. You might say, well, that's irreverent to say it kind of like that. I'm just using the wording from Exodus. That's all I'm doing, okay? Sin is going to bring a life that stinks in the life of Pharaoh and the disobedient Egyptians. And I want to show you there is supposed to be some irony here. And I'll show you the verses about the stinking here in just a second. There's supposed to be some irony here. In Exodus chapter 5, so just a couple chapters ago, this would have, like if you were just reading through Exodus, this would have been about two minutes ago, you'd have read this verse. So this is very close uh, in proximity. Exodus 5.21, <clears throat> the, the Israelite foremen have been beaten because of their request to go worship God. And so they go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, you guys just are just lazy. You don't wanna go worship God. No, you're just lazy. So anyways, they come out and they say this to Moses and Aaron, Exodus 5.21, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. So from their conversation, the foremen have, have apprehended the fact that in, in Pharaoh's nostrils, in Pharaoh's mind, the Israelites are making his life stink because they want to go worship God. It's their fault. But now, Look at what we see in Exodus chapter 7. This is with the Nile, uh, verse 20 and 21. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank. Pharaoh thought that Israel's desire to worship and serve God was making his life stink. But what God's doing is saying, no, that's not what stinks. Their desire to worship God isn't what stinks. What stinks is your sin. Look at it again in Exodus 8. This is with the frogs. Uh, God has sent the plague of frogs, and then Pharaoh has asked for it to be removed. So in response to Moses' prayer, we see this, uh, verses 13 and 14. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, his prayer. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them in heaps, and the land stank. We live, you know, in a landlocked place here um, in, in, uh, you know, Ringgold and Chattanooga and all that. But if you go to the beach, especially near a fishing yard, you know the smell of dead fish. And that's just a few dead fish that maybe the sailors throw overboard or they just die. We're talking all the fish in the Nile died. And there's this stench in the air as this Egyptian sun beats down, down on them. So Pharaoh, no, it's not Israel's sin, or sorry, Israel's desire to worship that stinks. It is your sin that stinks. And then it increases when he continues in disobedience. Uh, the first one says the Nile stank. The second one, 8, 13, and 14 says, 
the land stank. So now not only does the Nile stink, now the whole land stinks of these dead frogs. We had to dissect frogs in high school. Even those stunk really bad. <laughs> they weren't. Anyways, I won't go too deep into that. I like to keep our carpets clean, no vomit. Um, what I see here is sin is not staying compartmentalized. Pharaoh is sinning against God, and now the Nile stinks. And then he continues sinning against God, and now the whole land stinks. And there's this, this putrid smell. Every time you try to eat, every time you try to, try to uh, sleep, every time to have conversations with people, there's this stench in the air, this smell of death. And that's what sin brings. And that's what sin does. It permeates every aspect of our lives. It does not stay nicely where we put it like a little puppy. Stay. No, it goes wherever it wants. In fact, a lot like a little puppy. and ruins everything. I think about this in my own life. There have been times, too many, that I have walked in seasons of unrepentant sin. And it has absolutely messed with my mind and emotions. All of a sudden, I no longer have peace and joy. It's interesting, when, when peace and joy are removed, how much you miss it. I don't always know that I notice that it's there, but when it's removed and replaced with anxiety and fear, you know about it. This sick feeling in my stomach. Nothing's wrong. Circumstances are fine, but there's this sick feeling in my stomach. All of a sudden, I'm stressed out, overwhelmed, and irrationally angry. All of a sudden, I'm biting my wife's head off. I'm harsh with my kids. Friendships are, you know, strained. It's like, it's just coming out of me. They didn't do anything. It's just this sin is permeating my life, I think about even in those times, the things that I like aren't even enjoyable. My, my hobbies, the things I enjoy doing, just the flavor is spoiled in them. The stink of sin in one area of our life creeps into all the other areas and it spoils them. This is what sin does. It makes every area of our life stink. Have you ever experienced that? I'll, I'll tell you, I bet you have because I do a lot of counseling and I talk to a lot of people and this is what happens. People are struggling, I say struggling, giving in in one area and they're trying to figure out why all these other areas are in chaos. Well, I can tell you why. You're walking in unrepentant sin over here so everything else is affected. You may not see the connection, but I do. And I've seen it again in my, my own life. Now, there's one more thing I want to bring, and then we'll get to some good news, okay? I know this is a depressing sermon so far. <laughs> Number three, it doesn't get better yet. Sin brings further consequence without warning. I, I see this uh, with, with the gnats. This is the third plague. You have the Nile turns to blood. You have the frogs. Then you have 
the gnats all over everything, all over man and beast. And I'm not going to read through it again because it's actually what's missing that's interesting. It's what's not in that third plague that's interesting. See, in the first plague, God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, meet him at the waters and tell him this. If you do not let my people go, then I will turn the Nile into blood. He doesn't listen. Boom, Nile turns to blood. Then the same thing for for the frogs. God says, go to Pharaoh, go into him in, in the courts there. And tell him, if you do not do this, if you do not let my people go, if you disobey God, continue disobeying God, then these frogs will come over all the land. Pharaoh disobeys, boom, frogs all over the land. Now, Pharaoh continues in disobedience after both of those. And what's missing from the third plague is any sort of warning. There just is no warning. God simply tells Moses and Aaron, Okay, raise up your arms and over all the dust of Egypt and it, it will turn into gnats. All the dust of Egypt will turn into gnats and they do it and it happens. There is no warning. Now, what I want to say here is God does not have to warn you when the consequences are coming in your life. God does not have to warn you when he is going to strike with calamity. God does not have to warn you when the wages for your sin are going to be paid up. Now, this can be in uh, temporal terms right here, right now, but this is also eternal terms. Friends who are apart from Christ, I call you friends because I really do care for you and love you. If you are apart from Christ, you do not know when payday is coming. You do not know when, when God is going to say, enough is enough, you're done, your life is gone, you will now face judgment. You don't know when that's going to happen. And we will stand before a holy God to receive judgment for the sins we have committed. God does not owe us warning. In fact, I would say God doesn't owe us warning in the, in the beginning, but he's already warned us plenty, plenty, plenty. He doesn't have to give us specific warnings before calamity comes. We really should fear the holiness of God. I feel like I've hopefully made that point well in these last three points, but there is good news, okay? I mean, if without good news, we're all just in big trouble, right? <laughs> because... I have already disobeyed, and in my own power, I can't even walk in obedience. And so there's nothing but calamity, nothing but disaster ahead of me on my own. But there is good news. Okay, in the story of Exodus, God is going to bring this good news in the form of the Passover lamb and the sacrificial system. What is the Passover lamb? It's a spotless, sinless, if you will, lamb that will shed its blood and cover them so that disaster will not strike them. And the sacrificial system is much the same. It is is the, the slaughtering of innocent animals to take their place and cover their sin. That's the good news in Exodus that we will see. But for us in our day, the good news comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He 
he will be that Passover lamb. He will be that great high priest. He will be the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. And what we see is, though disobedience brings disaster, Jesus took that disaster upon himself so that we would not have to taste the fullness of it. Think about it. I told you that that sin rather uh, further removes us from paradise, right? Further removes us from paradise. What did God the Son do to become the man Jesus, our Savior? He was in paradise. He was in the presence of God in whom there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And yet he stepped out of heaven into our cursed world. Jesus, God the Son, now had to feel extreme hunger, extreme thirst. The sun beat down on him, the cold at night, the hardness of the ground. And he had to experience all of the curse. He stepped out of paradise for us. Not only that, Jesus took on a life that stinks for us. Now, I said this is more a mental and emotional grief. And so I want to be careful here because I really do believe that Jesus never lost hope, that Jesus really was the most joyful human ever to live. But I also know this, Isaiah 53 Verses three and four says, and he was despised and rejected by men. Think about it. Jesus had guilt and shame poured on him nonstop throughout his ministry by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious elites. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men, one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the stinkiness of life, the the inward, mental, emotional stinkiness. Jesus bore that for us. I could give you even one example that, you know, when we're feeling that, that guilt and that shame and that lack of hope and peace, what did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he felt what it was to have shame and guilt, even though he had never done anything shameful or sinful. He took on the stinkiness of our lives, the the stink that sin causes, the death that sin causes, that smell. He took it for us. And then finally, these consequences that for us can come at any moment without warning, Jesus walked into it willingly. He knew it was going to happen on the cross. That's why he's sweating drops of blood, crying out, God, if there's any way that this cup can pass, do it. But not my will, but your will be done. He knew that he was walking under the consequences, the wrath of God, sinless, deserving no ill consequences, deserving no wrath, and yet he allows Judas to kiss his cheek and says, what you'll do, do quickly, right? I mean, this is just crazy. Jesus does this for our sake and he's nailed to the cross and there on the cross, God pours out the wrath that we deserve for our sins, these consequences that for us should be poured out at any time in our lives and for eternity are poured out on 
Jesus. Again, Isaiah 5, uh, 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's disobedience. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This, this is the good news of Exodus. This is the good news of the Bible. That though we have all like sheep gone astray, we have all walked in disobedience. The Lord has laid on Christ Jesus the iniquity of us all. He stepped out of paradise. He took on the stink of our sin and he took on the crushing consequences of our sin so that we would not have to bear them and we could not bear them. We would be crushed for eternity apart from God, apart from paradise, paradise apart from any sort of pleasure. But Jesus took the punishment upon himself. Now you say, well, does that mean Christians never have anything bad happen in their lives? I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> Hebrews 12 tells us very clearly that God chastises, God disciplines the child whom he loves. It says, if you are not receiving the discipline of God, then you are not a child. You're an illegitimate child. If you never receive discipline as a Christian, then you're not a Christian. Because God will not let you walk in unrepentant sin unchecked. He loves you too much. He wants righteousness in your life too much. He wants you to remain faithful to the end too much. And he will allow hardship. He will allow calamity in your life to discipline you, to train you in righteousness. To help you to see the sinfulness and the stink of sin and to turn from it into God's life-giving ways. That's what discipline is in the life of a believer. But not only does God cover our sins and take away the punishment of our sins, he also gives us the power to turn away from disobedience and to walk in obedience. That's what he does. Christ purchased that on the cross, that he would put a new, or a new mind within us. He would cause us to obey his commandments, it says in Ezekiel 36. That's what Jesus did in the new covenant on the cross. His blood poured out. The ability, the power, the desire to obey God more than obeying the desires of our flesh. This is infinitely good news. Friends, life will be hard in many ways simply because of sin, the curse of sin universally covering creation. And I would say if you are a Christian, in some ways life will be harder for you because you're more prone to face persecution and to, to, to be uh, generous and pour out your life as a sacrifice. But that doesn't mean your life has to lack joy that doesn't mean your life has to be a complete disaster. It doesn't. You can turn from your sin and to a holy God. If you confess your sins, he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 says, this is where we are. This is the good news. A holy, just, fearsome God who is also gracious.
and merciful to those who trust in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we really do want to fear sinning against you. God, while your holiness is glorious, it is also fearsome. We recognize from your word that you simply do not take sin lightly. And God, we recognize that if we play with fire, with your holy fire by walking in disobedience against you, we will get burned. And so God, there are some who are walking in rebellion against you from their heart and they have never trusted in Christ Jesus. I know it's not a popular message, but it is a biblical message that payday is coming for them if they do not cling to Christ. And so God, I pray for any in this room who have not yet trusted in that perfect sin-bearing sacrifice, Christ Jesus, that they might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That they might say, God, I see that I've been walking in disobedience. I see that I deserve punishment, but I see that Jesus has borne our sins. And so on the basis of him, God, I ask for forgiveness. I ask for cleansing. I ask that you would help me to be an obedient person who can know you and worship you. God, help them to do that now. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, maybe sometimes we feel like we've got our fire insurance and so we don't bother with fighting sin and pursuing obedience as much as we should. Maybe we allow sin to continue in our lives. And so God, if we really are saved, I thank you that you will remove paradise from our lives in tangible ways in response to our sin. I, I thank you that you will make our lives stink until we turn to you in repentance. God, you do that because you love us because you want our holiness and our practical righteousness. And so God, I pray for, for any in this room today who are walking in unrepentant sin or who aren't fighting their sin like they should, Lord, that they would sidestep disaster by simply obeying you. Not to say that nothing hard or bad will ever happen in their lives again, but Lord, that it, it won't be punishment. It won't be even discipline, Lord because they're pursuing obedience to you as much as they possibly can. Lord God, you are glorious beyond compare, and that includes your holy justice. And so we give our lives over to you in complete submission, knowing a little better who you are. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.